Welcome to the Gazingram Dialogue. This is IJ Makan. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is Rick Mehta. Rick is a former tenured professor of psychology at Acadia University. He was dismissed by Acadia University, uh, but they never really provided any proper reasons for his dismissal. Uh, Rick got into hot waters at Acadia after he began challenging the prevailing views on feminism and on multiculturalism. In this episode, we talked about what's at stake with academic freedom. We talked about safe spaces in universities and why safe spaces are a problem. We discussed the biological and psychological differences between men and women. And finally, we talked about what led to Rick's termination from Acadia University. Rick has two public lectures coming up titled Safe Spaces in Canadian Universities and Assault on Our Democracy. The first one is this Monday, September 16th at Acadia Cinema's L. Whittle Theatre, Wolfville, Nova Scotia. And that's at 7 p.m. And then on September 23rd at 6.30 at the Halifax Central Library, room 301 is his second lecture. So if you are in Halifax or in Wolfville, coming week please check that out so before we get into this episode if you've enjoyed this podcast and have found it helpful in any way please give us a five-star review on itunes follow us on facebook or instagram we've also just opened a new store on teespring so please consider supporting zingram dialogue by going to our store and checking out our merchandise ladies and gentlemen i hope you enjoy this conversation please welcome Rick Mehta to the Kazingram Dialogue. Hey Rick, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's probably been a tough year, a difficult year for you, you know, in terms of um, what's perspired and and um, the the kind of the kind of thing that you fear the professor the kind of thing that professors fear when they speak up and when it happens to you you know it, it kind of makes everyone a bit afraid to speak up so let's just lay the ground for what happened so you from what I know you spoke up against you started viewing some your opinions on uh, multiculturalism and feminism and some of your faculty didn't like it and some of the students maybe didn't like it and then they complain and you're like well this is this is the university you should be able to listen to ideas that you disagree with you kind of kept going and then eventually the faculty your own faculty turned on you and then i believe your union also didn't support you in this in this whole thing and now we're here and you you were a tenured professor uh, yes, that's correct. So actually, before I made it into the media spotlight, I was trying to start a conversation within the university uh, about issues related to academic freedom. And so if students, if anyone goes to my YouTube channel, you'll see that there, uh, the first thing I ever posted was a discussion. So I held a panel discussion, hoping that would spark a conversation. So that was May 2017. Then in September 2017, I did a one hour, 45 minute talk to try to lay out all the core issues. And then the idea was that I also had proposals that could be used at Senate. We could have a uh, discussion then about the issues related to academic freedom. And uh, so that's what transpired before I made it into the media spotlight. Okay. And then 
what what was the what was the turning point then was it that there was a student who complained that oh hey professor rick is is making this um unsafe for me and i i, I was actually listening to your um your uh, your lecture at the at the SAFs conference the annual conference and you had met, there was an email from one of the professors who's who mentioned that your classes and the things that and the things that you were saying uh were potentially violating human rights and i was like okay what 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 could rick say that would violate human rights unless it's like okay you know you said something crazy but from what i from what i know from uh, SAFs and from what i've listened to i don't think you said anything that would violate human rights oh not at all yeah so basically that email was sent uh, i can't remember the date but that was in response to the talk i gave in free speech in september and so then what had happened was um because our university was going to be doing a uh having a discussion about our strategic plan and renewing it and so i said i wanted my talk to be considered a document for formal discussion hmm. and so then that person Cynthia Bruce who's actually now the current union president said oh you can be sure i'm going to come up with my own counter proposals and she accused me of doing things like advocating for human rights violations in in that talk uh, what did your talk include uh i talked about various ways that um that there was deep platforming happening at the universities and then my proposal was to put in the chicago principles on free speech and then for people who might be uncomfortable of ways to strengthen them so learning teaching you know incoming students about the art of debate and how to do um self defense in a class context so when you have your ideas on how to defend them so that was the kind of thing that I was proposing making sure there was academic freedom for uh not just um professors but for the all staff so then you know the admin assistants could express their viewpoints uh freely so yeah mine was about trying to make sure the table is wide enough to make room for all voices and and the opposite happened you were almost silenced out of i mean you were silenced out of acadia cuz you what 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 surprises me is the fact that you were tenured and then you lost your position so for anyone for our audience who uh for our listeners who 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 don't really know what's happened rick was a, a tenured professor and um over the span of a year rick um almost uh, well there was a year uh which was yeah my my last year at acadia was a nightmare and then there was uh, a legal battle after that okay and then rick acadia pretty much fired you for no good reason if i remember correctly yep so it's uh, so on my settlement the the main reason i signed it uh was not for the money because if i took the money then i would have had to agree to go away quietly and i didn't want to do that uh so the main reason i signed it was that when we when we had a draft of the settlement so the original draft said and the second line it said and you know dr meta's um employment was terminated for cause and so the union union's lawyer said oh no we'll just scratch out for cause so dr meta's employment was terminated period and so that's where i just smiled to myself and said yep that's my reason for signing it because that shows because that's a statement of fact mm-hmm. uh, demonstrating then that 
that there was no reason to actually have dismissed me. And so that was the reason I signed this because my reputation took a beating and that to me is more important than any money that they could have given me. It must have been tough for you though to to be one of the most loved professor for years and then all of a sudden you're down in the pits of hell. You know, you have your colleagues not supporting you. Yeah, well, everyone in my department um, yeah, turned against me. Uh, and so they put in these uh, sworn statements, uh, you know, to the investigator. And the key thing about these university investigations is that they're not done by trained investigators. Mm-hmm. So you can have, when you people talk about, um, uh, you know, sources to use uh, as witnesses or whatnot, uh, they can be ones who are neutral and just providing their perspective or in this case it's an investigation where you have a hired gun uh, who has a clear agenda and so he his, his so he he said he wasn't going to make any recommendation or anything like that but all he was trying to do was collect information so that the university could use that against me and so if you look at the interviews the transcripts those are all like filled with leading questions and so that's why they didn't want me to have a copy and for arbitration, they wanted that to be a closed-door hearing. So I think they know that what they did was, yeah, morally and ethically reprehensible. It's not something they want to be in the public eye. And I don't know if you're allowed to talk about this, but is there something that you could do to perhaps get your position back at Acadia, or is, is, that, like, is that a no-go now? Yeah, no, that's a no-go. So in... Um, if you're in the uh, private workforce, your employer can get rid of you at any time for any reason. They don't have to uh, justify it. So if there's for cause, then it makes sense. They'll just get rid of you. But if it's not for cause, then they just need to give you some severance pay. And the rate that's typical is one month of salary for each year that you work there, plus some punitive damages. And so in a private industry, you would have your lawyer, the company would have their lawyer. You come up to an agreement. And then usually the company will say, okay, we want you to sign some kind of non-disclosure. And so that way our public image is, um, doesn't get tarnished. Uh, but when you're in a unionized workforce, it's the union that represents you and you don't have any choice in that matter. And so when my union was colliding, colluding against me, hmm. so on the one hand, um, they're saying this is for the benefit of the membership. So that was their that would have been that would have been their rationale, although they never actually said it. And so when I look, I did put in a complaint about their actions because they had signed an agreement that allowed me to that undermined all the rights that I had in the collect in my collective agreement and my protections, and that's what allowed the university to dismiss me. And so then I asked the labor board about that, and they said, "Oh yeah, no, it's perfectly fine as long as they give you options after your dismissal. They're said to be representing you." So there's little in terms of recourse. And so a friend of mine who I met because of my ordeal, yeah, Mm. she suffered through a nine-year ordeal with her union. Yeah, so she was a a uh, part-time professor uh, at St. Mary's University, also interestingly in the Department of Psychology. Uh, She needed uh, brain surgery. Uh, People didn't like that. And so, yeah, she ended up being dismissed for that. And then afterwards, her union in addition to colluding, did not want to represent her afterwards. So she went through quite the ordeal. And in the end, after going through all that ordeal, she was just told, yeah, no, the union followed all the procedures. It was all legal because there's nothing in our duty of fair representation legislation that requires the unions to actually provide evidence that they're being honest or acting in good faith. So it's just, it's assumed to be. So 
when the rules are that um, that open ended, uh, they can do what they like, and of course, they're following the rules. And are, are, are the unions always look out for themselves first, and not the people that they're representing? Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, they can determine. They have full reign to determine what they think is the overall needs of the membership and where the priorities should be, and 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 they don't have to give any justification for their actions. Hmm. Is um is this this so in Canada? There are a lot of people who don't know that Canada is actually uh, the Canadian universities have a problem with free speech. Uh, there there have been a lot of deplatforming happening. Um, so. Is your case representative of what is happening in the universities around Canada? Uh, I would like to think so. I think the main problem is that what they typically do is when they want to get rid of you or silence you or say, well, you can keep you, but only under certain conditions, is that they make you sign non-disclosure agreements. And so if they're confidential, then afterwards you can't talk about them. And so I think that's where, and so that's where a lot of the, the problem lies is that these are all hidden in files in the in the university's um, uh, filing cabinets, for example. Is there a way to remedy this, this fear of professors, academics, not, being, uh, not supporting free speech? Is there a way to remedy that where you can? Well, I think with my case, the problem was that I was speaking alone and no one wanted to stand beside me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, I think it's, I think their individual pockets, you know, of professors being uh, harassed or bullied in within their departments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they really need to get together with others as a, a group because if you try to go alone against uh, a powerful uh, entity, you don't really have much um, much chance. So you'd really need to be uh, standing united with other people for it to yeah. work. And I think that's where um, I, I spoke with Francis Widows, and I'm, I'm sure you know Francis Widows. So. Oh, yeah. And uh, Frances was telling me that she had started the Rational um, Network Space or Rational, yeah, I believe it's Rational Network Space or National Space Network. And she was saying how important it is for academics to be in networks to support each other because if you're going at it alone, you just feel you're going against a monster and you don't have enough power to slay the monster. Whereas if you're going with a, with a group of supporters, it's a wholly different story. Yeah, so I think uh, my contribution uh, to the bigger picture is that ultimately I think I've been able to demonstrate uh, that labor law is based on a lie because my settlement is the re- and the reason I signed it, as I said, was that the second line stated only that my employment was terminated, not that it was terminated for a cause. Mm-hmm. And so then afterwards, the university said decided we're not going to give you your severance pay because you described yourself as a vindicated professor on Twitter and therefore violated the settlement agreement. So I'm like, okay, fine. So they, um, um, so they applied to the arbitrator and the union did nothing uh, to counter anything that the university said. And so then in the ruling, the first couple sentences, what the arbitrator claims is that I was fired for cause. And so there and so now I have that gave me a justification now to screenshot my settlement and say, wait a minute, the words for cause are not anywhere here. Mm. And so now I've caught, if, I mean, if I can catch a, an, an arbitrator uh, depicting false information, I think that really shows that the whole labor law is just basically based on a house of cards. So it's, so I think I am in a strong position. So it's just now I think 
since I can't go through the legal route uh, to fight them, I think I have the uh, the upper hand on sort of the moral and ethical fronts. And so going, uh, engaging the public, I think, is the best way from here. So for those of us who don't know what Canadian labor laws are, can you give like a brief? Okay, yes. Basically, uh, there's employment law, which covers everyone who's um, an employed worker. But then if you're in a unionized workforce, uh, the rules are different. And so you're covered under labor law. So what's interesting about um, labor laws uh, is that if you're dismissed from, let's say, the Globe and Mail or the CBC or a university or a hospital that's unionized, uh, you can't sue the actual employer. And that's because of a ruling... um, uh, what's it, Weber versus Ontario Hydro, 1995. So that's the first thing they'll tell you is if you want any kind of legal recourse, you have to work through the union. And so that's what prevents um, uh, people like me from being able to actually sue the university outright. Okay. And so because they know that, uh, that, that there's a little in terms of recourse, that's something they can take advantage of. And, and all um, professors working in the public universities uh, are, are unionized, is that correct? I think the vast majority are. There's okay. some kind of a faculty association. So, yeah, it's not like you're working for a, um, a university. So unless it's a private university, I don't, I'm not sure, aware of how many are, of our universities are private in Canada. So what I'm wondering is, so you have... We have Rick out in Nova Scotia in the East Coast speaking up against, uh, speaking for, uh, speaking up for free speech. And then you have a uh, Gadsad, who, uh, your friend Gadsad, um, in, um, Quebec. And then you have Jordan Peterson in Ontario. And those two guys, you know, they, they pretty much, I think, say the same thing that you, you've said. But why is it that in Nova Scotia, you know, they, you, you, don't, you don't seem to get that support. Is it the, the students are also more, I don't want to use it, progressive? That they're, you know, they're not so much in favor of free speech. They're like, okay, this is hate speech. Well, I think that there, that might be one factor. But I think the major factor is that um, in terms of the incoming students, is the education system at the elementary and high school levels has been quite dumbed down. And oh, yeah. so, I mean, there's documented evidence for this, and this is something I've noticed with uh, the reading comprehension skills not being as good as they were in the past. Their ability to reason about numbers and probability is not the same. And so if you don't have those basic uh, kind of skills, and then the critical thinking is not there. So so you have then uh, students then who might be complacent, uh, not and not as ready to react or they just think oh well my voice doesn't matter so i'm just going to try to uh, just stay in the background thinking that their silence will help them because i don't think that they've been taught those histories of the uh, from the past that silence is compliance hmm. is the um what kind of studies are, are, are these is it uh, all canada across across the board or is it nova scotia um east coast specific well, let's see. Well, I know when I had an honor student, we we're trying to look at um, factors that would predict uh, performance in their research methods courses. And so I know when she was doing her literature review, she came across one study. I think it was in the U.S., but we could extrapolate the data to Canada. But basically, they gave the same test of people's ability to process numbers that would minister something like 20 years ago to an incoming group of students. And the marks were 
were lower on this on that same test. So that's one piece of evidence. If you look at textbooks, mm-hmm. uh, so when I went to when I was a student in as an undergrad between eighty nine and ninety four. I mean, they were called textbooks because there were books that were just filled with text. There weren't many pictures. When you look at textbooks today and how a little actual content there are, and there are more pictures than uh, than actual text. And it's all about how can we keep this engaging by using software. So the yeah the uh, um, what do you call it the The standards just are, have been lowered. The, the, stand, the, the rigor is not there. That's what it is for. Rigor is not there. And this, is, this would be in universities as well as in elementary school and high school. Yeah. So, I mean, what happens is you have, there's different ways of looking at it, but you have the teachers who are taught within the university system. And then after that, they go into the elementary and high schools, and then they start giving bad information that way. So that's sort of the one route. And so then the education system is being, uh, dumbed down. Uh, uh, we've also had the self-esteem movement that started, I think, in the 70s, where there was that false belief that you shouldn't fail students because if you give students bad grades, mm. uh, then it'll hurt their self-esteem and mental health. So therefore, we must keep um, allowing these students who don't have the grades to get through the system. They then get into university, and then because universities now are more like just uh, degree-granting corporations, uh, it's important for them to be able to get the students through. And so then they put pressure on the faculty to lower the standards. So it becomes this vicious cycle. Mm. Is there, um, so so when you were, you because you were a professor of, I was going to say philosophy, but you were a professor of psychology. Uh, that's right? correct. And as a psychologist, you must have some sort of hypothesis as to why, um, going back to what happened to you, why, a majority of faculty didn't support you. Is, is there is there some sort of evolutionary reasoning that, that you, is it, is there something about human beings that they're afraid of poking the head up and getting I guess shot at? Well, I imagine there's a, a little bit of that. I think part of it is also the uh, selection process. So when you're pr- applying to be in graduate school and then after that to apply to become a professor. Uh, there's there's nothing that uh, selects for uh, strength or content of character. Uh, so all that matters is your publication records, what you can show as uh, your teaching effectiveness, uh, whatever that is vaguely defined. But I think the selection process uh, selects, it's almost like a natural selection process that selects for people who are going to be career opportunists who are not going to rock, rock the boat. And but that's that that's what you don't necessarily want as a, for an academic. You want someone that'll challenge the status yeah, exactly. quo. Yeah. I think with the corporatization of the universities that happened in the late eighties and early nineties, so you have the sort of that one factor. And then um with the political composition of our professors increasingly coming more and more to the left. So you have those two factors that I think of combined to create, I think, almost like the worst elements of leftist ideology with a corp- within a corporate model. Mm. So what, 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 did exa- what, what happened in the 80s and 90s, with the corporatization of uh, universities? How, how did that happen? Well, it uh, used to be that, you know, only the best and brightest could get into universities. Because uh, I remember in 89 when I was applying, and I was just so happy to have made the cut to be able to get in. And 
because uh, I remember I wanted to go to Western Ontario. And so I was, managed to actually get into the university and be admitted, but there was no uh, no spots for the residents, as an example, I think, if I remember the details. And so, uh, so that was one option I couldn't do. But I remember I was just so happy to be able to get a grade, uh, you know, a final average that was 80 so I could get into university with such a sense of pride and accomplishment. Uh, whereas I think it was, it was around the 90s, though, where they started uh, treating students as customers that needed to be satisfied. And, uh, and so then to do that, you need to lower the standards. And so we've had a, uh, I think that's where we started to have the, the slow, slow dumbing down of our education. Okay. And, and that, I think that's still the case where the universities treat students as customers because they're the ones who are deplatforming many of the people, right? Uh, yeah, so basically what's happened now with them is the whole, is this idea of the safe space culture where the, mm. and it's usually going to be a small minority of students, but they're very vocal. Yeah. And so they'll say they want to be in a place that's safe, and that means they don't want to be exposed to ideas that uh, that they find cha- that challenge that they find challenging. And is there a definition of what makes something not safe? Are there certain things that you can't say? Well, basically what I think is happening in our uh, elementary and high schools is that uh, the students are taught not to reason on the basis of facts, but instead on their emotions. Mm. And so, and then if they're all taught that they're all going to be victims based on who they are. So if you're, um, you know, if you're a female, then these are the barriers you have against you. And Basically, they're taught these ideologies, and the reason I call them ideologies is there's no way to say when when you're correct and when you're not. So no matter what the argument is, they always are going to come out correct. So that's your sign that what you're dealing with is an ideology. And and it's infected all universities in North America. Uh, yes, I think it's not just North America. It's all throughout um, the Western civilization. Because when I was doing my talk on free speech uh, uh, and I was doing the research, I noticed the same kind of things happening in England. So I briefly talked mm-hmm. about England in my talk in 2017, but the same thing in Australia, where even in Australia they're doing land acknowledgments, not just at universities, but uh, elsewhere as well, where it doesn't even really make sense to do that. So it seems to be something that you see in uh, all the countries that are based on principles of Western civilization. And is the reason why uh, students, a lot of students seem to not speak up is because they're afraid as well? Or is it that they agree with the small minority that's speaking up? Uh, often, yeah, no, oftentimes it's because of, um, of being uh, fearful. And that I think comes mm-hmm. from the... Uh, the studies by done by the heterodox academy, so there is this uh, the sense of self censorship. The heterodox academy, for those who don't know, is a uh, is a group started by uh, is it Jonathan Hyde? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, and it's 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 a group of academics and and non academics who come together to explore ideas that are uh, that may be dissenting. Yeah, well, the main purpose of the Heterodox Academy is to have uh, academics and graduate students, so incoming academics, uh, who all agree on the principle that we should have viewpoint diversity. Mm-hmm. So within universities, what, when, when did it happen that um, there was a 
slow lean towards the left. A majority of academics became, I guess, more academics were left than right. Was there a push for that, or was it just a natural pro- progression of how it went about? I have to do a lot more research to try to yeah. figure out all the root causes, but at least based on the heterodox academy, I mean, in, I mean, in around 1990, you already had twice as many people on the liberal left end to conservatives at that point. So I think if we're going to trace it back, I think the reasonable place to start is the um, the social movements of the 60s, because that's where you had, you know, the left liberal kind of ideas, the first talk about free speech at Berkeley. And so, yeah, and you have the ideas coming in. Um, but I think it's a lot like a, like a Trojan horse. So there are some ideas that are probably good to bring in, mm-hmm. uh, but then within that Trojan horse are also bad ideas that have, um, that have infiltrated their way into the university system. Once they get out of the Trojan horse from there, they proliferate. How do you think the, um, the lack of support, the lack of support for, for freedom of speech within Canada is, um, also affects the political level, the federal level? Or is it just within academics? Well, it start was, starts within academics, but then what happens is the students graduate uh, with bad ideas in their mind. And so then from there, they go into places like teaching. So that then affects your uh, elementary and high schools. But then if they go into law and politics, that's, where you, that's when they really become a threat because now you're changing the actual social fabric. And so I think that's been for years where our, uh, judges have been at the Supreme Court level have been more of activists rather than ones who are trying to change the Constitution, for example, rather than just enact the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Is and, the uh, yeah? Go ahead. And then the same thing at the level of government. Then too, is you have uh, the idea that what you're seeing is you know both the uh, you know federal and but I mean both the conservative and the liberal leaders both uh, you know kind of embrace feminism and they definitely, you know, you don't see Andrew Scheer speaking out against that. I mean, that's what really landed me in the hot water was when I took him a task on Twitter saying, how can you support free speech, but then kick Senator Bayak out of your caucus. So what did, what exactly transpired with, with that, that, that made you tweet? What did Andrew Scheer do? Uh, well, after the Lindsay Shepherd affair, so when that hit the news, yeah. uh, so then in the, the parliament, he started addressing the issue of free speech um, in parliament. So I thought that was a good thing. But then uh, that, I think that was around November 2017. Then it was December or January when he kicked out a senator from the uh, Conservative caucus, Senator Bayak, because she had posted letters on her website in which some people were uh, uh, critical of indigenous communities, saying that that's racist. Okay. And so I just said, well, wait a minute, how can you say you support free speech, then on the other hand, kick out someone out of your caucus? And then I just said, if your position is that criticizing people who are indigenous, uh, that that's not allowed, then that's bad for race relations. Mm-hmm. And that got you in trouble. Uh, yes, because in the university before that, I'd already been speaking out against our decolonization initiatives, and because I saw those as counterproductive on a number of levels, of, but especially for race relations. So, what is what is decolonization? Please explain that. What is it? It's it's basically or the other name for decolonization is indigenization. So the okay. idea is let's replace the curriculum uh, with what they call indigenous ways of knowing. 
So when, which is, it's not really clear what any of that really means in the first place, but the idea is that with the English courses, uh, the general premise would be is let's not, let's spend less time on Shakespeare. Let's talk about these new authors as an example, as opposed to let's have them side by side and see where they, uh, where they're similar and where they're different. And how pervasive is this decolonization of universities? It seems to be widespread across Canada. So I remember when I got the emails about that, I forwarded them to Francis Whittison and uh, Joanne Boucher at the University of Winnipeg. And both of them were both shocked because with Francis Whittison, she actually, I think, supports the decolonization on at some level. And she thought that what was happening at Acadia was far, was far too excessive. So she was the one who helped me. Uh, she gave me feedback on the email message that I sent within our university uh, to make sure there was nothing that it wasn't attacking anyone or anything like that. It was politically neutral. And who's pushing for the decolonization of universities or, or, or subjects? Well, the principles that the university wanted to adapt are actually from the UN. So it's, uh, from the UN? Yeah, so the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indi- Indigenous People. So it's based on those principles. And I even put in the argument, why are we trying to base our university on these principles of the UN when the uh, federal government refused to do so? Well, and uh, presumably, there, it's not the bureaucrats per se, but heads of um, or chairs of... Um, departments that are putting this in? Uh, well, you have your, yeah, I mean, you have your administration and then it's also backed by your, uh, by the unions as well. So they're both on the same page that this is the direction that the university should be going. And and this probably ties in with what Francis, uh, when, I, when I spoke with Francis, she talked about um, the indigenized, indigenous science. I think that's what she's mentioned, the indigenous science where they're teaching indigenous physics and indigenous biology and indigenous chemistry. And she was just saying, well, it's kind of strange because science is science. You know, there's no like, there's no American science. There's no Chinese science. There's no Indian science. It's all, all science. Uh, that's, yeah, I mean, that's generally the principle that's, is that you just have science and then all people, regardless of their races or their, uh, you know, sexual orientations as example, uh, can contribute. So we're just looking at the strength of the idea and we really don't, don't care about, you know, those characteristics about you that you have no control over. So that's why it's supposed to be a neutral perspective. So we don't look at the issues that are irrelevant. We just want to look at the, the strength of the arguments and what data you have to support your arguments. And so that means that, um, well, the, the science is, is being also, is being corrupted by, um, would it be correct to say that it's started with feminism, at least some sort of feminism that's kind of branched out into this? Uh, definitely, that's correct. Yeah, so basically, uh, so at Acadia, we have the group called the Women in Science and Engineering. And so first they, they said, oh, yeah, we need to, to get women into STEM. Mm-hmm. So science, and that STEM is short for science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, but then from there, it became STEAM, where which was adding A, which is arts. So it's science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. But the thing is, the arts are already dominated by women. So that didn't make any sense then about um, adding the, the, the A or the arts into it. 
And so then in the uh, presentation of the Honors Thesis uh, Conference that we had in 2018, uh, the student of um, the main proponent uh, was talking about that in her in her thesis. And so in, the int in her introduction, she said then, uh, what the A refers to is the arts, and what we're adding now to STEM is critical thinking. And I know that's nonsense because that student was in my courses. And she knew from first year psychology that psychology is about critical thinking. She'd taken research methods with me, and there she knew that I emphasized critical thinking. So what critical thinking there is not referring to the way we normally think of critical thinking. It's about critical theory, which is about uh, putting people into these hierarchies of power based on their race, their sex, whether they uh, identify with their gender, these, yeah, these characteristics. And so then you have these hierarchies of power and the ideas, the ones at the top are ones that need to be brought down. But it's logically inconsistent because then you have, like now what we're seeing in sports where you have males, biological males saying, oh, well, I identify as female, so therefore I want to compete in the women's sports. Yeah. And it's an unfair advantage. Or, yeah, and that's that's something that's fascinating to me because for centuries, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I'd be wrong to say for all human history, we've never had male and, at least in terms of sports, male and female compete. And now we have, you know, in in martial arts, you have uh, a male that identifies as a female going into uh, the ring, the octagon, and just beating up females. And we're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's okay. It's like, well, it's not really okay. And then you had... Um, um, just a few months ago, there was a, there was a, I guess they're not a female. Um, and pro in like 2016, 2017, 2018, this female who's, who was a male back then was, uh, uh, was ranked 197 in the American, um, in the USA, uh, 60 meter dash, uh, hurdle jump thing. And it was like 197, 197, 198. And then in two, 2019, this person came out as female and then competed in the female section and won the whole thing. And I was like, well, of course they're going to win. And then in the interview, the person was asked, so some people are saying, hey, you know, it's unfair that you are competing as a female because you've been a male all your life and you have all these advantages like, you're, you know, I don't know what all the biological advantages are, but you have all these advantages um, against these natural females. And he's, and then she, he uh, goes, well, you know, I have had the trouble. I have had to go through all this adversity, and I'm actually the one who is most struggling, like who had the most difficult time struggle uh, to compete. And I was like, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I find it fascinating just because I used to teach the third year course on hormones, drugs, and behavior. Okay. And so, um, and I think this is what I didn't realize that I was teaching was wrong, which was that our, the textbook, I mean, it was basically, uh, I mean, with 99, roughly 99.5% of us, when we're born, you look at the, the genitals at birth and you can say this person's a male and this person's a female. It's just that it's not a 100% relationship. Mm -hmm. And so based on that, what a lot of the textbooks say is, oh, the men that are men and women are women assumption is wrong. So it, just it goes against the whole idea of probability, which just is that if there's any kind of exception, we must throw out that whole principle altogether. And I didn't realize that that was a principle that I was teaching that was 
that was wrong. So I used to, I mean, I used to say that's what's in our textbook. Uh, and I would explain some of the conditions that arise where you, you know, so like an androgen insensitivity syndrome, uh, what you have happen is you have someone who is a biological male, so they have the XY chromosomes. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the outside, it appears that they're women, and that's because in the extreme cases, they don't have any uh, androgen or testosterone receptors. So there's uh, nothing there that allows their bodies to masculinize. So on the outside, they look like um, like females. And then because their brains haven't been uh, masculinized either. So that's why you could have someone who's a genetic male if you ran the blood test, mm. uh, but they're actually females. So they'll actually have testes. Oh. An example. So that is, I mean, that is a condition. How common is that? Well, these are rare conditions, so as uh, so, I mean, it's good to acknowledge that these conditions are there and they exist, yeah. and that you know when we encounter individuals like that, that we treat them as human beings who deserve respect. So, by all means, that was the position. Just you know, be aware of these conditions that they're out there. But I mean, they generally show that these they demonstrate the, the general rule of how development happens, though. So. So you, you, you taught this uh, class on hormones. What would you say for someone who doesn't know anything about human biology? Like what, what would be some biological differences besides the um, genitals between male and female in terms of ho- hormones? Uh, well, we start to see uh, reactions even right um, soon after birth, such as how they respond to stimuli. You know, if you have, hear a sudden noise, how they respond to pain. So we start to see... Uh, differences fairly early. And I remember when I was teaching my introductory psychology course in 2018, a paper had come out showing that their brain, they they managed to show that there are actually brain differences between males and females at one month. So they actually do this and and they could actually show looking at brains of, of, of human children who are one month old and that there are already differences in the biology of the brain. You can't really attribute that to, to environment. And, and then the, the skill sets, I mean, generally on average, and again, that's, I think, where people get, um, get flustered is we're just talking about statistical averages, not about individuals. So you really need to know where you lie in relation to others. Uh, but, you know, generally the, the males tend to be better at the math. Women generally tend to be better at verbal. Uh, their interests are different. And I think we need that because uh, with all the various functions that there are in society, we need to be able to fulfill those functions. Uh, just that, you know, if you have a female who's better at math, then why not go into math? And they shouldn't be, you know, they should be able to pursue a career and not be treated any differently at the workplace. So, it's, I mean, I kind of look at my motherhood past. She was probably more like a male. She liked working with things as opposed to people. Uh, she, I mean, she was the one who did the computer systems. She was a computer system, systems analyst and could think through the logic. I could not understand computers for the life of me. So I was the one who was more interested in a career like nursing or wanting to be in a career that was more female dominated. So it's kind of interesting. So just, you know, yeah, that's why you need to look at the individuals. We know what the averages look like, but we really need to look at the individuals. Do, do you know how, how, uh, how much um, hormone um, therapy, or I don't, I don't know if it's hormone therapy. I guess it is hormone therapy when they when people are transitioning, how much it affects them. So if a male goes to, uh, is in transition to becoming a, a woman. <clears throat> the hormone therapy that they go through, how how much 
of their testosterone can be lowered to do you know well i guess the yeah i mean when it comes to the uh, the condition with the gender dysphoria it's a very complex one because there's the low base rate so you have a low percentage of individuals who are uh, who are affected uh, but then i think anywhere between the 60 to 80% of uh, those individuals end up staying with their biological uh, gender so if you're born as male you'll, they'll end up usually anywhere between 68% will end up staying as within their gender. They might maybe be homosexual or you end up ruling out a condition like autism or depression. So that's what makes it very complicated and why it really needs to be done on a case by case basis. And, and this is, this is like, um, this is research. Like we know the statistics because someone has researched this. Well, uh, yep. So yeah. So the, I mean, we have the, the researchers at the gender clinics, but unfortunately, a lot of them are ones who have been fired from their positions because of because they're daring to say this is what the sign says, and we're not going to go along with the transgender ideology. So it's a dangerous time. It it certainly is at dangerous times. Um, it's it's kind of funny because we have um. The, the, there's a rise in drag. I think they're called drag kids around Canada. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I find it very strange that this is happening because we protect our children so much, right? We were out here trying to protect them from all sorts of falling down, getting into fights, all this. And then on the, on the, uh, on the one hand, we're doing this. And then on the other hand, we're sexualizing these kids who are dressed up in these like very, very, I guess, ew, uh, well, minimal clothing with a bunch of makeup and then they're doing catwalks for older men. Yeah, it's um, it's strange because I, I think it, what they're capitalizing on is generally people want to be open-minded and be accepting of others. And so this, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, so it's, yeah, it's like the Trojan horse or the wolf in sheep's clothing is you're trying to capture, uh, capitalize on people's general sense of uh, compassion, wanting to be accepting of others. Uh, in a way to do it that's very nefarious. It's not, I mean, I fail to see any difference between that and let's say the beauty pageant, let's say like the child, the John Benet um, that happened. I can't remember her name, if you know what I'm talking about. I don't know who you're talking about. What happened? Okay. Well, this was a child who was murdered, but she was one who was paraded in, in beauty pageants as a child. So, and so you have these children, you know, dressed up uh, sexually. And again, it's for, uh, the, the pleasing of men and yeah so the whole idea though when it comes to yeah sexualizing a children it's just reprehensible in moral matter if it's done for people on the left or if it's religious conservatives or whatever it doesn't yeah. doesn't really matter who does that it's one we have to always say it's reprehensible it's so true i i think it's just the that you know with kids kids are kids i mean i don't know i i'm not a psychologist so you're gonna have to correct me on this but from my knowledge most kids may think a bunch of things when they're younger and then they they're obviously as they grow older they, they change their minds on many things but at this point it seems like the parents are pushing some sort of ideology on these kids when they're so vulnerable and perhaps not even trained to think rationally yeah i mean the children have long been targets of various groups i think the easiest if you think of um is let's say fast foods or any kind of advertisements, right? They, so I mean, they they know that children when they're young have this this trouble distinguishing what's real from what's fantasy, 
And so then they push an advertisement trying to get them to want toys or meals and things like that because they know they'll nag their parents to make them buy products. So that's why children have always been a target for for various um, agendas. So now this is just um, the latest threat and just that I think parents might know about advertisements, but it all depends on whether the parents are doing their job in terms of monitoring how much um, exposure they're getting to television or what they're doing on their computers and things like that. So the parents aren't doing their jobs. It's, it's a great disservice to the children. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, it reminds me of uh, the Jess- Jessica Yanni case on BC and with Lindsay Shepard. For those who don't know, Jessica Yanni, correct me if I'm wrong, went to uh, salons and asked that her male genitalia be waxed. Uh, that's correct, yeah. And some of these women, they said no, and then they took, and then he, she took them to uh, the, the human, human rights. rights no? Did they lose their jobs, some of them? Well, some of them end up just closing sh- closing their businesses because, mm-hmm. you know, or or just giving money over to to Jessica and Eve. So then that way they could just get her over with, as opposed to go through through a legal battles. Uh, but some are trying to fight. So yeah, it's uh, what what is happening? Like, how does Jessica have so much power over these uh, these cases, these situations? Well, it's um, well with the human rights tribunals. It's basically it's a different law system within our general legal framework. So it's the same way how lead labor law is a slightly different set of principles and its its own little uh, its own little system within the larger framework. So that's how you have the Trojan horse that and from there it spreads. So it's hope we're hope I'm hoping that um, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms that's representing those. Um, uh, business owners and women can actually uh, fight against Jessica Yaniv because I think that would create a very dangerous precedent. Hmm. If she won. Yeah. Okay. And with Lindsay Shepard, Lindsay was kicked, was permanently banned from Twitter for having an argument with Jessica. Uh, that's correct. Uh, I mean, just what I found reprehensible there is that Jessica Yaniv was making very deeply personal comments about Lindsay, uh, you know, after having given birth to a child, it's completely uncalled for. And yeah. And, uh, and then it was Lindsay who ended up uh, being uh, kicked off Twitter. And so if it wasn't for the public outcry that had happened, uh, she wouldn't have been able to come back. But unfortunately there are many others who have been uh, deplatformed. So one um, well mentioned is uh, Oren Amate. Uh, who's on Twitter, very uh, well-respected uh, clinical psychologist and mm-hmm. uh, really uh, articulate, very polite gentleman on Twitter. And then, um, yeah, and he was de- deplatformed and just permanently banned just because of an issue, I think something about using a wrong pronoun or something to that effect. So he was permanently banned from Twitter? Uh, that's correct, yeah. So... It- so Twitter, Facebook is like is our public private space because it's privately because it's owned by these companies. What do you think? Do you think it is okay for these private companies to decide who they kick off and not kick off, or do they have an obligation to the public because they're a public private space? 
Well, I mean, it's a private company on the one hand, uh, but if their claim, it's a matter of what they claim to be. So if they claim that they want to be an open space for people to be able to have uh, discussions and to share ideas, then they should uh, be upfront with that. But they're, they've been changing the rules consistently. And this is something that's only happened in recent years where mm-hmm. they've really started to clamp down uh, uh, with the censorship. So that before that, um, yeah, they used to be open to all ideas and let people post what they want. Uh, but it's only in recent years that they've become, that they've really uh, clamped down and become censorship machines. It, it is quite crazy how, how much they're censoring there. They're, they're um, yesterday, I believe it was yesterday, I was on Twitter and I was actually on your page and you had retweeted um, someone's tweet about um, when, when was the last time you saw uh, a Christian, uh, a Muslim and a Hindu in an Orthodox church or something? And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I'm looking at the tweet. And then it was a picture, obviously. But the picture was uh, not censored, but covered up. And it says, this this image might contain sensitive topic. And I was like, well, is this a murder scene? What is this? So I click and it's just three guys sitting, standing in a church. Yeah, exactly. Yes, it was just very bizarre. It doesn't make any sense. It, it's just, you wonder how the people who are in charge of these companies, how they're going about censoring. Is it just, you know, the people that people that aren't progressive enough that they're censoring? Or is there a, do you think there's like a mandate within the companies? Well, there's, uh, I think there's a mix. There's the algorithms that look for certain words. So that's one basis. Uh, but many of them are, uh, are manually demonetized. So I know the Mark Dice, because I like watching um, his videos. And so, you, you, he mentioned how there were some videos that had been there for years and then suddenly de- got demonetized and ultimately it was because, yeah, he was making fun of people. But that's the whole point of parody, though, is to make fun of people because that's what sheds light about how absurd uh, the people who are being criticized are. And the, 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 does this go back into um, what we were previously talking about this about safe space within university is it just an outworking of this into the public private s- uh, sphere I think that's a reasonable way of interpreting it yeah so just the idea is that yeah basically censor speech in the name of politeness but then the whole idea is yeah we're trying to be respectful but what's interesting is that the respect seems to just go in one direction so it's, yeah. how 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 tolerant should be should we be of intolerant ideas? Like, should we if there was if someone made a excuse me if someone made a legitimately racist claim, right? Just say that all Asians should die because they're yellow. Oh, I, don't know, well, I, I don't know if that's I, not, that's not necessarily racist, but well, there you're advocating for someone's death, and we already have laws that protect us on that. So those are things that you cannot do and that's something that's in that's unique about canada because um because within the states even hate speech is considered protected speech should we have hate speech that should we protect hate speech i don't even know what hate speech means it's a it's a vague term it just it and that 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 is it's very problem because it's it has a vague definition and then from there you can just keep uh, expanding it so the best, uh, yeah, I mean, the best uh, antidote to bad ideas is good ideas. So you come up with an idea like that. I just say, no, that's a really stupid idea. And then list off all the reasons why it's terrible. 
So that's the best way to defeat it. I mean, that's what we do in the martial arts is get, someone comes at me with a really weak attack. Yeah. Yeah. You just counter and do the takedown. You do martial arts? I used to many years ago. So I got as far as a blue belt in karate. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I miss my karate days though. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, okay. the principles actually they're uh, from the art of war, which I, uh, which I haven't read yet. It's on my to do to read list, but I mean, those principles are great. Uh, even though those are originally written in military context. Uh, but those, if you teach those to students in the art of debate, but Rick, isn't that culture appropriation? <laughs> well, we want to take get the best of all our, our best of all cultures, and we are a multicultural society, are we not? <laughs> well, what what is what is our obsession with culture appropriation in Canada? There just seems to be a rise of accusations of culture appropriation, left, right, and center. It doesn't really make any sense because you know cultures have always borrowed from each other. So I mean, if I look up. Uh, if I go online and I look up a recipe for Swedish meatballs, me technically then there, I, as someone who's a parents of, uh, of immigrants from India, then appropriating, uh, appropriating Swedish culture, right? It's, it's just a ridiculous concept. I mean, that's the whole idea of having different cultures interact with another. So you try to get the, the best elements from each. It does seem counterintuitive to have multiculturalism and push for multiculturalism, and then on the on then and then on on the other hand, say, okay, this is culture appropriation. If you then go and borrow something from another culture, because that's what the way cultures are built, isn't that? It's a bit of a strange because I mean, there's I mean, this whole way. It all depends on how you go about uh, doing it. If we try to say, okay, one thing we all have in common is our is that we're human beings, and now within that contact, let's try to look at some of our differences and see what we can learn from each other, then that's the right way of doing it. But by saying, well, we're all different. And on that basis, then we must fight each other based yeah, on arbitrary criteria that that, that that doesn't really take us anywhere, it just leads to social unrest. And, uh, but most people don't see that. Most people are happy to jump on the boat and say, hey, that's cultural appropriation. I mean, we had, had a friend of mine who um, I was having a discussion with, and she said, oh, something, something, something on a totem pole of my to-do list, the lowest thing on my totem pole. And then she, she just stopped. And she was like, oh, hi, Jay, that's cultural appropriation. I shouldn't say that. I was thinking, wait, what's cultural appropriation? She's like, well, I can't use the word totem pole within this context because totem pole is a sacred um like a, a sacred thing for certain groups, so I shouldn't use this. And well, I was like, "Well, it's just it's just a word that you're using to explain something." But she was she was like, "No, no, I can't use this word at all." And I thought, "How far have we gone? Well, we go to the next thing, you know? If I made, you know, if I made some sort of um, Bangladeshi food, and be like, "Oh, that's cultural appropriation." Yeah, yeah. So maybe should I not use a computer because? It wasn't people of East Indian descent who created them, so therefore I'm not entitled to use them. It's a, yeah, it's a bizarre, yeah, really bizarre way of thinking. It doesn't make any sense. Do you think that it's going to get worse, though, with this whole idea of cultural appropriation, the safe space movement? It seems to be growing. Is it just going to get worse and worse, and then we're going to get to a point where everyone, people are so... People are self-centering so much that eventually it's just going to implode. They're like, okay, that's it. 
Well, it's yeah, it's always difficult to predict the future. I, I like I just envision it like a physics problem. So you have all these different forces. And so what matters is where the net force is going to be. And so that's why my view is just do what you can in terms of speaking up, try to be the force for uh, for reason. And so hopefully, I mean, I'd like, I'd like to think that eventually the house of cards will fold. And I know relating to my own battle, I mean, I've managed to expose the lie. And um, yeah, so it's, hopefully it can be a case where it becomes a house of cards that ends up less falling on itself just based on its own um, logical incoherence and, and hubris. Yeah, and hopefully that is the case. And you have, um, you're, uh, you're doing a speaking tour, is that correct? Well, I wanted to. It's not. It's a matter of what's practical. But okay. uh, what I end up doing is uh, two talks, or, or what I will be doing is two talks. Uh, one in the town of Wolfville. I tried to uh, hold a talk at Acadia, but uh-huh. uh, they wouldn't give me rent me the facilities. Uh, so I've uh, booked a theater, um, the Al Whittle Theater in town. So as long as they don't suddenly change their minds. Uh, but I booked the theater, I'm paying for it, and people can come to that talk. Or, and then there's one, so that's on Monday the 16th in Wolfville, and then Monday the 23rd in uh, Halifax, at the Halifax Central Library, we'll be doing the talk called Safe Space Culture in Canadian Universities and How It's an Assault on Our Democracy. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea there is I'll first talk a little bit about what safe space culture is, so just the idea of we've gone from university being places where all ideas can be discussed and nothing goes unchallenged. The, the idea of the equity, diversity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is part of the safe space uh, and social justice ideology. And then what will be unique to mine, I'll, I'll talk about some recent cases of academic freedom. So the Ricardo Duchesne case, um, there's a case at Ryerson, I'm forgetting the professor's name, but basically mm-hmm. he just refused to hand over a reference letter and then uh, wasn't given his position as a part-time philosophy professor. Uh, the, at the UBC, there was a deplatforming of a transgender person of all people, uh, Jen Smith. And the ones who uh, wanted to deplatform actually was the, uh, the professors' union at UBC. Uh, but then the administration decided, no, we're going to let that person speak. Mm. And then UBC ended up being banned from Pride, and then my case. So those are the... <laughs> So basically, the uh, the point is, I'm trying to see what's the theme here: is the unions, and how then they're the, the ones doing the deplatforming, either by omission of actions that they should be doing to protect the professor's academic freedom, or by the actual ites of commission. That's what mine gets into: is what actually happens in the underbelly. So my right. case is not unique. Right, and is the um, um, the case with Duchenne? Is that the what, what happened with Duchenne? I think. Francis mentioned it in the podcast, but I forget what what is it, what is it that happened with Duchenne? Uh, well, uh, his arguments were against multiculturalism. Just and he's interestingly someone who came to Canada from Puerto Rico, so he himself actually is an immigrant and he speaks with an accent. And so he um, he published like mountains of data, so it's a lot of numbers to back up his arguments that. Uh, what we're doing with multiculturalism is bringing in uh, cultures that are not um, that are not compatible with ones of Western uh, civilization, and that you know, of course, is going to lead to 
uh, civil unrest. That that was the major concern: is what happens when you bring in cultures that are opposite to one another, trying to live with one another. Of course, it's not going to be peace and harmony. Uh, so then there was, um, you know, the mobbing that occurred, asking for his reg- resignation, whatnot. So he ended up uh, being forced to take early retirement. How early are we talking? Is he still young? Uh, no, so I mean, for many of the professors, like uh, I think it was Anthony Hall at Lethbridge, he was a bit older. So oftentimes, you know, you can find some kind of a you know, in quotes, uh, solution. So there, you know, I mean, if he's older, then yeah, you just take your early retirement and just uh, you can go away. Or with Anthony Hall, you know, just take what they're going to give you. And if you're if you're in your you know in your sixties or something like that, then just go away quietly and just live a quiet life. But for me, if I'd taken the money, I mean, I'm only 48. <laughs> and um, if I can't even talk about my dismissal in the context of applying for another job, as an example, because that would violate it, then right. what's the point of it? Because if they're just going to come back a year or two, they'll let down the line, just take all the money anyway. I mean, that's what happened to Jan Wong at the Globe and Mail. So she'd gotten 200 grand as a severance package. Right. And then later on, just because she had mentioned the Globe and Mail, and it was very minimal. Uh, but then they end up taking all the money back, so it's like it's not worth it. Wow! So the um, <clears throat> the case with uh, uh, the the so trans- Duch- yeah. So with Shane, then yeah, he just took yeah. early retirement, and he'll still do his research, I guess, because if he was late in his career. Um, uh, there's probably less for him to be censored about. And it was very public what had happened. So, yeah, we don't want that kind of research at the University of New Brunswick. So you can do it, but not be affiliated with us. So okay. that's what happened with his case. And with the uh, transgender who was deplatformed, but then was not deplatformed. What was? Why was? Uh, why Why were? Why was the person being deplatformed? Uh, the union's argument was that by having someone like that here, is that that person is going to be promoting is going to be promoting hate. You know, they're going to be doing hate speech because uh, Jen Smith is uh, someone who is a biological male, presents as female, but wants to be referred to as he. So it's not at all what you'd expect from (laughs) transgender uh, perspective. And Jen Smith has been strongly against uh, what they're teaching in the schools, that your gender can switch day to day. And if a child wants to transition, we should just do them and give them their hormones. Uh So... Yeah, she's, so this she's was she's in support of that or she's not in support of that. Oh, uh, totally opposed to that. Oh, okay. Okay. And so because that's what the talk was going to be about, so the faculty association was saying no, we we can't have her. Oh. Okay. Because that person's transphobic. Right. In their logic. Of course. Of course. And then with the philosophy, I think I'm pretty sure it's the philosophy professor at Ryerson who refused that's to correct. hand over. Um yeah. and that was just that was just a very strange case where he wrote a reference letter and, and the, and the chair asked him to give the reference letter. And he said, no, I can't do that. It's private. Yeah. And that was it. Right. It was, it was pretty simple in that sense. Yeah. yeah and the union said, uh, so he went to his union for help and they said, well, oh, well, the way it works is you, you comply now and grieve later. And he said, well, that's useless for my case. Of course, if I give over the reference letter, what's a grievance going to do afterwards? Right. It doesn't make any sense. But that's usually the way the unions work is, oh, uh, the, the employer has a demand. Okay, well, well, let's just comply with it and then we'll grieve it afterwards. So I can imagine the behind-the-scenes conversation for my dismissal. Oh, we want to get rid of that prop. Okay, sure, we'll fire him. And then we'll just grieve it afterwards. 
Yikes, that's crazy. This is we're li- we're living in crazy times. Yeah, so I think that yeah, that's why I think the voice of reason need to to speak up. And um, okay, so just what just a reminder again for our 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 listeners. So you have an event in Wolfville uh, on September sixteenth. That's correct. At the L, what's the theater? Al Will, yeah, Al Al theater. theater. And then you have um, Safe Space and Canadian Universities talk at the public library in Halifax on September 23rd. 23rd. That's correct. And and do you have any other tours, uh, any other places that you may be visiting soon? Um, No, basically it's kind of hard to organize all that when you're not in the city. So, I mean, if there are any, if there are people who are willing to host me, I'd be delighted to come out. So it's just mostly the organization that's the difficult part. So you need the many hands to, to right. put the event together. Okay. But I'm definitely yeah. happy to, to come out to anyone who wants to listen to me. Okay. And um, the ISAF, ISAF, uh, the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, have the, they've been supporting you throughout this whole time with like writing letters. And is there, are you, are you presenting at any of their um, sponsored events anytime soon? Or I guess not sponsored. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're sponsoring the talk that I'm doing in okay. Halifax. Okay. Um, yeah. And if there's others who were, you know, they definitely would support me if uh, at speaking at other places, if, you know, I think depending on the specific context. So it's, yeah, I mean, they can't just support only me, obviously. So it's, <laughs> It's a matter of what's a reasonable expectation. So I'm grateful for all that they have done, whatever they are uh, willing to do. Um, yeah, so uh, darn it. I hate that uh, when, when you think there's something that you want to say and it's not coming to mind. Coming to mind but um, uh, darn it. I hate when that happens. I think I've got most of what I wanted to, uh, to say in this in our conversation. Yeah, so. for sure. What, what, one last thing. How important is free speech or protecting free speech and speaking up for free speech how important is that in in um in uh, in our western civilization i think that's probably the most uh, fundamental of our principles because if you can't voice uh what's in your mind then 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 yeah i mean what's the point of voting about an economic policy or anything else if you can't uh, speak the truth of what you truly believe Well, with that, Rick, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you for having me.